We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast that focuses on the intersection of Judaism and pop culture. As always, I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky, joined by... Rabbi Michael Knopf. And we have a very special live recording of uh, tonight's episode uh, where we're joined by friends uh, via Zoom. Zoom has been our go-to uh, way to connect with community, family, friends, congregants, and loved ones in this weird and strange world that we're living in. Um, you know, we never think of the technology that we use every day, the screens that uh, are always in front of our faces. And now I can only speak for myself, but Mike, I'm sure you agree as a, a rabbi, how we've now turned these uh, technological platforms as opportunities and conduits uh, for sustaining our holy communities at times during this pandemic when we can't physically be together. Um, And so it's amazing to also be able to do this together um, and have so many friends join us for this conversation. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, when we normally record our podcasts, we we usually record from our let's call them home studios, uh, and uh, uh, that's I think being generous. Uh, and uh, but so we're at, we're at our home studios again tonight. But um, it's it's really going to be interesting and fun to be able to open this up and to uh, be joined, you know, as it were, by a, a live studio audience. And we we were talking just before uh, we 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 hit record. Um, about you know some of the uh, obviously the challenges and uh, the anxieties and the uncertainties um, and the frustrations of um, this crisis and this this strange period that we're in, um, but also some of the great gifts of it too. Um, and you know, given that we're we're, we're privileged to um, you know uh, be in um, you know relatively uh, functional households and. Uh, you know, the kids haven't totally gone Lord of the Flies yet. And, uh, and we have, you know, food that we can put on the table and working internet connections. Um, and so we have the capacity, you know, in, this, in, uh, in the midst of this crisis to, um, to connect to people um, that we um, uh, may have, have lost touch with uh, and, and had not been in, in close connection to. And in some ways, um, even though this is a period of, of social distancing, um, in a lot of ways, I feel um, spiritually closer to a lot of uh, friends, family, and congregants um, than I have in a long time, uh, and uh, and that and it feels like that uh, here tonight uh, to be able to not only have this conversation with you, Jesse, uh, but to be able to have this conversation uh, in the in the presence and with the participation um, of of so many good friends. One hundred percent agree, and uh, I only hope uh, that everybody who's listening, everybody who's participating. Um, takes care of themselves, takes care of their family, um, takes this seriously. Um, For those of us in our um, uh, metropolitan New York community where I am in Northern New Jersey, um, this has already really uh, hit our community very hard um, and as it continues to expand um, to so many parts of this country. And we hope and we pray that um, together we um, do what we're supposed to do, making the sacrifices that I think none of us wanted to make uh, because this is not anything that we're used to um, and yet sacrifices that we need to make for pekoach nefesh, to save a life and understanding that protecting life uh, supersedes everything in our faith. Uh, And so everything that we do is putting life first um, and um, that's really our goal as Jews. Right. It's, it's amazing to think of, you know, the, the uh, mitzvahs that you are given an opportunity to do, you know, and, and so, you know, in some ways we think about this as a, a period of, of restriction, um, but uh, I'm not the first person to, to, you know, to raise the possibility that maybe we, we, we think about this uh, in some ways the, the way uh, observant Jews 
sometimes think of Shabbos, um, which is that it's not so much a restriction as an opportunity to uh, uh, to uh, to elevate values that we don't normally get to elevate. And so in this case, um, we get to uh, elevate pikuach nefesh, saving life. We get to uh, uh, elevate and honor um, those who are, um, you know, working uh, and, and sacrificing uh, them, uh, of themselves for, for the community's welfare and the community's safety. Um, and, uh, and also, um, it's an opportunity to recognize um, the... Uh, the often invisible people in our lives that uh, keep our world and keep our society, keep our lives functioning. The the grocery store clerks and the the uh, um, the, the farm workers, uh, the uh, trash collectors, um, the the delivery men um, and women. Uh, to to be able to see you know the glue that holds our society together, and 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 then to know that those people um, are also on the front lines. Um, often without a living wage, and to be able to kind of hold that up, um, and to and to say, um, you know, uh, when we make it through this, um, we need to have a real conversation together about um, uh, how we uh, care for each other in in more equitable ways. Uh, I'm into that. Yeah. So uh, why don't we transition as we're talking about uh, scary and uncertain times? Yeah. Uh, transitioning to uh, of which. Our, our pop culture reference for the evening, uh, very much focused on scary and uncertain times. Uh, we'll be talking about the new HBO miniseries, The Plot Against America, based on the 2004 Philip Roth novel, uh, by the same name. Mike, do you want to give us a brief synopsis of the miniseries? Sure. So like you said, uh, The Plot Against America uh, is a, a miniseries uh, on HBO right now. Uh, uh, only three of six episodes of the miniseries have aired. So that's where we are in the miniseries, although both of us have read the book. So we have a, a sense of, of where the story is going. Uh, the miniseries was produced uh, by... Uh, 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 by David Simon. David Simon, thank you. It was yeah. uh, on the tip of my tongue. David Simon, uh, who is best known for uh, having created The Wire, um, but also uh, uh, The Deuce, which uh, just completed its run at HBO, which is an excellent, excellent program. Um, and uh, the story is an alternative history uh, that imagines uh, Franklin Roosevelt is defeated in the presidential election of 1940 by Charles Lindbergh, uh, who uh, is, uh, is generally... Uh, acknowledged to have been a uh, an anti-Semite and a Nazi sympathizer, uh, and uh, and and what uh, it it actually is based on um, a real kind of historical possibility that uh, the Republican Party uh, had floated the idea uh, uh, in the lead up to the 1940 election of running Lindbergh um, against uh, against Roosevelt uh, didn't end up happening, of course. Uh, but it imagines what would have happened and had that uh, taken place and had Lindbergh won uh, and what the impact of that would be, right? It's, it's not a story. It's a story in a sense that has a grand scale because it talks about, you know, statecraft and, in, and, and political intrigue um, and, you know, and, and issues of war and peace. Uh, but it's also a very intimate story um, in the sense that it follows uh, a, 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 a Jewish family from New Jersey named the uh, uh, named the Levins in the uh, in in the show, uh, but uh, the Roths in uh, in in the novel, uh, and it's a a, a a fictionalized version of Philip Roth's family. Philip uh, is the the late author, I should say, Philip Roth, who died in, in 2018, uh, and uh, the main character of the book is is uh, Philip Roth as a young boy, uh, and uh, and and his family, his uh, his his father. Uh, who is, um, uh, you know, aggressively anti-Limberg? Uh, his his mother, who in the book um, is a, is a much more um, uh, demure figure, uh, but in the show um, uh, is you know is is uh, uh, really kind of uh, representing you know it's it the the two parents kind of have the uh, play the like fight or flight responses of of Jews in a moment of fear, um, and so the father is more of a fight and the uh, mother is more of a flight. Um, there is, uh, uh, Philip has uh, an older brother named Sandy uh, and, uh, and a cousin named Alvin, uh, who uh, also represents the fight uh, drive uh, of Jews. And, and, uh, and since America has not gotten into World War II because of Lindbergh's presidency, Lindbergh runs on 
uh, on keeping America out of World War II and not entering the war. Uh, and uh, so since America in this uh, fictionalized history is not fighting World War II, and as the story goes on, uh, in some ways is, act is discovered to be actively helping the Germans uh, win World War II, um, uh, Alvin goes to Canada to uh, fight the uh, to fight against the Germans with the Canadian Army, um, and ends up uh, as we see. By the way, we should all tell you that since we have seen the first three episodes of the show uh, and have read the book, that there are going to be spoilers in this conversation. Spoiler. If you don't want to hear any spoilers, you should uh, get out of the conversation, listen uh, to the recording when it's when it's released, and after more episodes of the show are released. Uh, now that the spoiler alert has has taken a moment to land, uh, we can tell you that Alvin. Um, uh, loses his leg in a uh, in a in a daring raid uh, during the uh, uh, during the Blitz uh, in uh, in uh, in Europe, uh, and uh, then returns back home to New Jersey. Uh, and so uh, the second half of the of the book, in some ways, deals with the fallout, the the real casualties of war, right? And so one of the amazing things about the book is that it's not a simple morality tale. We, we talked last time, Jesse, about uh, hunters, uh, which, uh, which in some ways, uh, you know, amps up the, uh, the, the violence, some might say romanticizes the violence of, uh, of, of the Holocaust and, and World War II. Uh, uh, the plot against America does not romanticize the violence. Um, it, it, it plays with the real costs of, of going to war and it brings them right home. Uh, and uh, and it also isn't a simple morality tale of you know of uh, uh, um, you know Jews victims and good uh, Gentiles aggressors and bad um, that it's a it's a much more complex tapestry uh, that uh, that Roth and, and then uh, David Simon weaves in, in the show Roth weaves in the book and David Simon weaves in the show. So I'm wondering, Jesse, what what are your reactions uh, to the show? What what were your thoughts about how it compared to the book so far? Yeah, um, the show and the story in general um, hits close to home um, for our Jewish community, um, for those uh, who are from Richmond and not from uh, South Orange, where we are in South Orange, New Jersey, uh, we're a, uh, a little over a mile from the border of Newark. Uh, the vast majority of the Jewish community in our area came from Newark, specifically the Week Wake section of Newark, um, where... Uh, this show takes place, where the Levins in the show, the Roths in the book uh, take place. We have a congregant, uh, Sam Conviser, who gives tours of the historic Jewish neighborhoods uh, of Newark, um, the different churches that used to be synagogues in, in the city of Newark. Uh, part of that tour is stopping by what was, until his death, Philip Roth's home. Uh, and um, uh, the history of Jewish Newark that is portrayed in the show really hits close to home uh, for so many members of our own congregation who grew up, uh, went to Weekwake High School, uh, and very much experienced that part of the Newark Jewish community before leaving the city and uh, establishing Jewish communities in the surrounding suburbs. Um, for me, uh, uh, the show hits close to home just because I feel like it is retelling uh, our recent history. Uh, in, in this in this country, uh, I, I think we can lay it on the 2016 election, uh, and uh, it's um, an exact image, uh, a mirror image of what that experience was like. I think for so many of us, um, I remember. Uh, Mike, we spoke about this at a, at a um, previous podcast episode, but when the two of us um, spoke up and we tried to organize a uh, walkout of a speech that that's then candidate Trump was giving um, in 2015, and we were trying to organize a rabbinic walkout, and a number of colleagues um, really called me out, uh, called us out on it, and thought what we were doing was irresponsible, thought what we were doing was wrong, that we were using our um, uh, rabbinic pulpits uh, for politics and we should stay out of that, and that this person could become president one day and we don't want to be on his bad side. Uh, and uh, those same colleagues, um, you know, have reached out to me now and said, you know, I wish I knew now what I knew then, that I, I, he, if I knew that he was actually going to have been elected, 
then I would have been participating in that with you. Uh, and mm. it really speaks to me about the show specifically. Um, the character I think that stands out most, and I don't know if I'm saying this as a rabbi, uh, I don't know if you felt the same way, Mike, or yeah. if others, but, but the character of Rabbi uh, Bagelsdorf um, right. was probably the most disturbing person in the show for me because he was the one that legitimized uh, uh, Lindbergh's candidacy to the Jewish community. He was the one that gave it the stamp of approval and you didn't have him out there speaking to, right, this came out in uh, the, the second episode that he wasn't there speaking to a room full of Jews. He was speaking to uh, a room full of non-Jews because the Jewish community may have already not been okay with him to a certain extent uh, in the show, but he was telling the non-Jewish community that Lindbergh wasn't anti-Semitic, so they didn't have to feel bad. Um, He was the token Jew that was standing up at these Lindbergh rallies uh, and um, celebrating him for his promise uh, to not go to war and to not bring uh, the American uh, people and the American military into this world war as well. Uh, and that, I think, probably is, is what made my stomach turn the most. Yeah, you know, I mean, when, when you were talking about uh, our experience uh, at, at APAC in, in uh, uh, 2016, the spring of 2016. Was, yeah. Right? Um, you know, I, 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 I thought of that immediately uh, when I saw Rabbi Bangelsdorf, uh, because I think that the, you know, that the, that the arguments that we were getting from uh, many of, uh, of our colleagues and, 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 and even, you know, congregants uh, was, you know, an, an argument uh, in defense of, uh, of, you know, APAC's work and, and how they did it, right? In order to advance APAC's agenda, um, we have to have good relationships with, with anybody uh, who is in power, with anybody who's able to uh, help us secure a strong um, uh, 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 relationship between uh, the U.S. and Israel, um, and uh, you know, and, and so I saw a lot of that in Rabbi Vengelsdorf, that that you know he believed, and I think he really does believe this. I think that there's a sincerity to his character. He believes that it is in the Jewish community's interest. Um, to uh, uh, to stay out of the war in Europe, to uh, to become more integrated into American society, right? And and he's willing. He he knows full well. Um, not he he denies uh, Lindbergh's anti-Semitism, um, but he knows full well who Lindbergh is in allegiance with. He you know he becomes obvious and apparent that Lindbergh uh, you know he's shaking hands with Hitler as we see in episode three. Um, you know, so it's so it's obvious who Lindbergh is, uh, even if Lindbergh himself is very cordial to Rabbi Bengelsdorf. Uh, but uh, but nevertheless, Bengelsdorf says, you know, uh, believes that the way to um, to advance, um, in his view, the Jewish community's agenda is to form an alliance with someone who 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 actually doesn't have the best interest of the Jewish community or many other communities. Really, the 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 fabric of American democracy itself doesn't have it at heart. And so I, I think about that. I thought about that a lot, um, uh, you know, in respect to, uh, to, you know, our, to, to thinking about uh, our response to uh, then candidate Trump speaking at APAC um, and, you know, and, and whether it was appropriate um, to extend the invitation and, and whether it was appropriate to walk out of it. And, and, and I, and I still wonder that, right. I still wonder if, um, if, uh, if, if the, if the, if the cost, uh, if the if the if the perceived gain of APAC's work um, is worth the cost of uh, of 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 doing business uh, and and elevating in a sense, giving a platform, a literal platform uh, to uh, to to someone who really stands uh, uh, um, as anathema um, to so much of what uh, Jewish tradition. Uh, believes in and the and the Jewish vision for society. So right, so, I think it was that moment. Right, yeah. there were there were hundreds of rabbis, cantors, uh, rabbinical students uh, who walked out of that speech, and yet um, what the media showed, which was true, you know, hundreds in a room of fifteen thousand is a blip, and you don't see that. So what it showed was fifteen thousand members of the American Jewish community who was uh, giving Kenneth Trump an ovation, and that also then legitimized him to 
to the rest of right. society the same way Bengelsdorf is telling this room of non-Jewish supporters, trust me, I'm a rabbi, <laughs> Lindbergh right. is not anti-Semitic, Lindbergh is not a Nazi sympathizer. Who are you going to, you're going to question right. a rabbi's opinion about what is and is not anti-Semitism. Right. Uh, and so I think it's similarly was the case right. here that it was seeing a large stadium arena full of Jews cheering this candidate. They're saying, well, how could he um, be uh, stoking the flames at the, at the very least, right, of anti-Semitism in this right. country if he's getting this standing ovation? Right, and, you know, and I, and I, and and you can see it, in, it, you know, carrying out in other ways. You know, what, you know, why is it that uh, uh, that that Trump, you know, holds uh, a, a rally uh, touting, uh, you know, his his work on behalf of the African American community, and and you know, launches a platform that says, you know, after you know, uh, African Americans for Trump, uh, and and the reason is not so much because, as as I think many sensible analysts would, would agree is not so much that he thinks that it's actually possible that he's going to peel away um, reliable African-American support from Democratic candidates, but um, it, it's a signal to, you know, to, to white moderates uh, to say, you know, so like Trump isn't the racist that people are portraying him uh, as, as being, that he's really kosher uh, in, in that way because, you know, because he's got black friends, right? Um, right? So uh, Lindbergh has a Jewish friend. He can't be all that bad. Um, and, and I think that the, you know, one of the, one of the issues to me, and, and this is, uh, so if, if you think that we're being, drawing too direct a parallel between Plot Against America and post-2016 America, um, I, I, you know, two things to say. On one level, you're right, because, uh, because Philip Roth wrote his novel in 2004, uh, so well before, published his novel in 2004, so, so well before the Trump era. Um, uh, but... The other side of it is that David Simon very explicitly uh, has said um, that uh, that that you know um, that that what he's presenting is a sent effectively an allegory for uh, for post twenty sixteen America and you know all of those markers are there even uh, down to in uh, in um, in the third episode uh, they use the phrase making America great again uh, and you know they they tie it to the people who have desecrated a Jewish cemetery, right? That these are that the people who are saying make America great again are responsible uh, for, for, uh, for, you know, this kind of carnage against the Jewish community. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, t for what David Simon has said about that is um, that there's a parallel uh, between that, between something like that um, and, uh, and uh, you know, people uh, um, marching on the streets of Charlottesville with tiki torches uh, chanting, the Jews will not replace us um, shortly after uh, Trump's election, um, in which he uh, insisted America first, which was itself a uh, you know, Lindbergh era uh, um, uh, Nazi sympathizing slogan, slogan. Yeah. Yeah, um, from, from that period. Um, you know, it's interesting. When I saw, I think the other time that my stomach turned was seeing these uh, members of the Newark Jewish community trying to uh, scrub the swastikas off Jewish uh, headstones uh, of, of the Jewish cemetery um, and thinking about the spike in hate crimes, the spike in uh, anti-Semitic uh, bias and, and hate crimes in this country since the 2016 election, um, right? And again, I want us to be very careful. I, I think you're right, Mike, not suggesting that... Um, that the president of the United States is a Nazi sympathizer, not suggesting that right. that that at all, and yet, or that or um, that or that he invented anti-Semitism, right? Oh, but okay. but yeah. that what often ends up happening is that um, when a politician is looking to come to power, they use whatever means necessary. Um, you know, I, I find it fascinating that Lindbergh was not a politician, but was a celebrity, right? He was this pilot who became famous for his one right famous flight and used that to uh, leap into the nomination. Uh, the, in the novel, right, it talks about that there's this stalemate at the Republican National Convention that they can't come up with a nominee, the delegates can't vote for a nominee. It's only actually like 30 rounds of voting that they suggest Oh, maybe somebody should put Lindbergh's name right. in the hat. Uh, right. And they're like, oh, 
well, this guy's famous and we don't think any of these politicians are going to beat FDR. So let's throw this pilot's name right. in the ring. Uh, and I think similarly, um, this guy who has his names on buildings who became famous really more so because of a reality show than anything else, um, you would suggest that uh, it's so outlandish and might just work that that's what was needed in order to be victorious. And if he needed to have a core constituency of, um, you know, a base uh, of white nationalists at, at his core, then that's okay. If he needs to uh, throw red meat to that base, he's going to do that. Um, and not worried about anybody except for that base. Um, yeah. The, uh, you know, the, sorry, go I, ahead. I, I just want to go back to Rabbi Bangelsdorf for a second because. Well, know, can I just can I just comment yeah. on on something that you just said really quickly before you switch gears? So um, I, there was this scene in I think it was the first episode of the of the miniseries where uh, where Lindbergh is flying the Spirit of St. Louis, uh, his his you know famed airplane uh, that he used to cross the Atlantic. Uh, he's, he flies it, you know, uh, into a campaign rally and all these people are gathered there cheering uh, at this amazing sight of, of, of Lindbergh. Right? And I think that, that, you know, that, that captured the, the, in some ways some of the, the spirit of the Trump candidacy, um, which is, you know, part of the stew of, of, of what's going on in America today is um, this sort of like veneration of celebrity. Uh, and, um, you know, so, and I think that, that, uh, David Simon really kind of hits that on on the head, how you know that could have happened in 1940 just as well as it happened today. There's something uh, that we that that you know there's something sick in our society um, that uh, that that vaunts uh, that that vaunts uh, celebrity, uh, and and you, know, you can see that playing out today, right? When the when the president uh, in the midst of a of a global pandemic in which thousands of people are are dying. Right, the numbers in, in the U.S. just uh, topped uh, uh, the number of people that we lost to 9-11 have, have now died Americans in this pandemic. Um, and on that same day, uh, he tweet, uh, the president tweets out, you know, Trump is a ratings hit, right? Um, so there's, and, and there is a large population of people um, that, uh, that, that, you know, is thrilled about that, right? That, um, that wants a president who is able to be a ratings hit in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah, that, 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 that's what he's concerned about. Um, I wanted to go back a second to Rabbi Bengelsdorf and this idea that right, what Lindbergh is saying um, all the time is, uh, it's not a contest between Lindbergh and FDR, it's a vote between Lindbergh and war. Uh, and that's Bengelsdorf's whole thing. He supports him because he doesn't want um, America to get involved in this war with the Nazis. Uh, and right, the, the quotes that we quote all the time, when we talk about the interconnectivity of world Jewry, no matter where we are, when something happens to the Jewish community anywhere in the world, it affects me deeply in my, in my neshama, my soul, uh, differently, I mean, truthfully, when it happens to somebody who's Jewish than when it happens to uh, other human beings, although that also affects me. Uh, because of the Talmudic notion uh, of Kol Yisrael Aravim Zebazeh, that that right, all of the people of Israel, all the Jewish community, are responsible for one another, and um, it seems like this rabbi in the show isn't concerned with that. He's really concerned with uh, what is beneficial to him, and what ends up happening, right? He ends up getting this lofty gig after the inauguration, after Lindbergh uh, begins his presidency, to to work in his administration, essentially. Uh, and he's, it's sort of like, he's not concerned what's going on with the, the Jews of Europe and, and the murder of Jews in Europe because he actually got a promotion out of it. Right. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked about this uh, before, you know, uh, and um, uh, Hannah Arendt, uh, Coined this phrase, I think, um, the the banality of evil, um, and you know she she talks about Eichmann in in those terms. So she coined it, I think, when she was a, a journalist covering the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem. That that you know Eichmann was in some sense like uh, you know otherwise unremarkable. He was a technocrat, you know, um, 
that had a role in developing the final solution. Um, but it, you know, in, in reality, he wasn't a like, you know, a Nazi true believer. He wasn't like a, he was an anti-Semite, like many, many Germans, most Germans maybe were, were, you know, sort of like casual deep down anti-Semites, uh, that, that had, you know, harbored, uh, uh, prejudice and, and, and ill will against Jews, but he had, you know, he had Jewish friends, you know, whatever. Right. But, uh, but, but he was in a system in which like to get ahead, right. To have a promotion, you participated in atrocities. Um, and so it's not quite the same as I was just following orders. It is like, um, caught up in a, in a machinery of, of evil. You are likely to, to participate in the evil. Um, and be willing participant in evil, right? It's not, it's not just like, uh, you know, I had no, I had no choice as following orders, right? You're a willing participant, even if your intention is not necessarily to, uh, to, to, um, uh, to, to, to perpetrate in any evil. So I think that that's the case of Bengals. But one of the things that I think is, you know, the, that the show elevates, um, and, and that we're, we're touching on a little bit is, um, is that, you know, like I said, it's not a, it's not a simple morality play you know, between, you know, the, first of all, like the, the anxiety on some level that, that I think is pervasive uh, throughout Jewish history and in Jewish literature, you know, Roth um, uh, has been analyzed in this way too, um, that, that, you know, the, the pervasive anxiety of what it is to be a Jew, to, to never feel fully at home wherever you are, even in America. Um, and that's definitely present in this. Um, but, and so there is a, a menace that one feels in the book and in the show um, in following this family and seeing, you know, the, the, the larger society kind of like turn against you. There's this sequence in episode three where the family goes to Washington DC, which is their, you know, first trip kind of right into uh, uh, Lindbergh's America. And, um, and, and there's, and it's just filled with menace, right? People just openly hostile to, to Jews. Um, and, and at the same time, what they discover is that some people that they were concerned about, uncertain about, right, the, their, uh, their tour guide. Mr. Taylor, their tour guide, uh, that, the, that, uh, um, uh, uh, that uh, Mrs. Levin is very skeptical about at first because she's anxious about, every, you know, she's anxious about everyone that's not Jewish that they encounter, um, turns out to be uh, a, a really, you know, lovely and decent human being who's willing to stand up uh, for, uh, for, for a Jewish family uh, when they're being threatened. So on some level, it's, you know, it's not about like Jews versus Gentiles and how the Jew isn't home anywhere. It's in some ways about uh, how uh, uh, they're, they're, that there are always threats within a pluralistic democracy of someone rising to power uh, by vilifying uh, and targeting another group of people. And the question is, um, like, where does the broader array of citizenry stand during those times, right? Are you, um, uh, you know, are, are you kind of in the, in, in the moderate middle where you're not taking a side, uh, which is in effect to support the status quo? Are you among the people who, part, who, who feel licensed uh, to target the vilified group? Or are you among the group of people um, that uh, even if you're not the vilified group itself, you are going to stand up uh, in defense of them, right? So there, there are lots of think pieces that have come out since the uh, 2016 election about, um, about what this moment means for uh, the Jews and the, and the rising anti-Semitism, but other pieces that, that have said, David Frum, I think, for The Atlantic wrote, um, you know, what if they're not coming for the Jews this time? Where will the Jewish people stand in this moment? Right. But so, I remember there were there were um, um, signs. I remember during the Muslim travel ban, right. gathering with with uh, friends and colleagues in airports at Newark Airport after Trump uh, announced this travel ban, and we were holding signs that said, "First they came for the Muslims," and we said, "Not this time." Right. right? That are we only taking a stand when it concerns us? We're taking a stand when the hate and discrimination is against anybody else because hate doesn't discriminate, right? If somebody is hateful towards one minority, uh, it's easy. Our instinct is going to say, okay, I'm not going to speak up unless they spew that hatred towards me. I'm right. safe right now. But ultimately, if they're hateful towards one minority, they're going to be hateful to all minorities they're threatened by anybody who is different than them. Um, and, you know, that's ultimately, uh, I think, what we see 
now, where and how will we stand? Uh, and that's, I think, what we see in this show is this struggle among the, the Jews of Newark and specifically the Levin family or the Roth family in the book of how will they stand up? Um, are they going to, um, as you said, flee, right? to Canada. flee to Canada, which was a real, it was, it was a joke that many had uh, leading up to the 2016 election. And then in all honesty, a, a real serious consideration that some had uh, in the Jewish community and in other minority communities, uh, some in the LGBTQ community, uh, some uh, in the immigrants community uh, had after the election. Um, is it going to be fighting back physically, right? Are you going to be like Alvin and enjoying the war? Are you going to just complain all the time? Uh, the criticism of Herman, of the father, uh, in the book at least, I don't know if the, the miniseries is going to take it the same direction, is that he he's vocal about his complaints about uh, Lindbergh, but doesn't do anything with them. Right. Uh, he's very loud and stands up. And I think this is all of us, right? We're like, oh my God, Trump, what is he doing? Uh, but if all we're doing is saying this and speaking about his discriminatory statements in our own echo chambers, in our own Facebook bubbles, then are we doing anything? Are we really taking a stand against his discrimination? Yeah, and so I, I just want to, if I, if I may, uh, just do a quick plug for your friend and mine, uh, Professor Eitan Hirsch uh, from Tufts University, uh, who's been a lifelong friend of uh, both me and Jesse, uh, who has just written a, a book uh, uh, called Politics is for Power. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's an argument against what he calls political hobbyism, which is effectively uh, like ranting on Facebook and maybe signing a petition here or there uh, and, and actually, you know, getting uh, active and involved uh, in the political process. Uh, um, and so he's actually going to be doing a, uh, a virtual uh, uh, talk on his book for our congregation, but I guess, you know, open to your congregation too, Jesse, All right. uh, to, tomorrow night, uh, Wednesday night, April 1st at 7.30 p.m. So that uh, you'll join it for us, but plug his book because it's really, it's really important. And I think that what you're, what you're talking about is, you know, a question that, that moments like these and, and moments like this pandemic, you know, uh, pose, right? Uh, you know, is, what's the response? Is the response uh, flight? Is the, is the right response? Uh, and, and, you know, it was, it was present for the, for the Jews of Europe too in the 1930s, right? Is the right response flight? Um, and at what point do you know that the right response is flight? Uh, and it's not so easy. Is the right response fight? knowing that if you choose fight, you might lose and therefore die? Um, or is it, as it is for many of us, is it, is it freeze, um, which is another possibility. And, that, and that's uh, really hard to suss out in moments of crisis. Um, in the book, spoiler alert, right? There, there are essentially pogroms that come to America that lead to burning of synagogues, even murder of Jews. And it's only at that point when uh, the father, Herman, says, okay, I'm ready, let's flee to Canada. And by that point, America has closed its border uh, and not letting anybody go into Canada. Uh, and right, you sort of wonder, have we sort of, right, at what point does one decide that it's time to leave and it's too late? I often think about this, you know, what were the Jews who remained after Kristallnacht thinking, and I think they were thinking what everybody wants to think, that uh, this will blow over, uh, this isn't that serious, um, that this is my home, and nobody's going to tell me to leave my home. I remember, I know, Mike, you and I have, have the practice at times of when we speak uh, words, uh, holy words, at rallies or protests or vigils, we often wear our, our tali totes, our prayer shawls, right. right? That which is um, specifically reserved for times of prayer. Uh, I remember after we came together in our town for a vigil uh, after the um, Tree of Life shooting that I was very intentional all of wearing a prayer shawl at that moment. And I said, this is a statement, I'm never going to hide my Jewish identity. I'm never going to hide who I am here in my home, in my town. Uh, I am a proud American and a proud Jew and I will never be forced to choose one over the other. Right. And I think that's our, the, the struggle that this uh, miniseries speaks about. 
Right. You know, it, I mean, it, it raises, um, you know, a really challenging question. You think about the character of, of, of Bengelsdorf uh, and, you know, what he represents is, uh, is you know, the, the rejection. The res- I mean, both of these in some ways are responses to the charge of dual loyalty. Right. And, and Bengelsdorf's uh, response to that is we are not dually loyal. Uh, Jews are exclusively loyal to the United States, and we're going to prove it to you by sending all, all of our children uh, to live on farms in Kansas uh, with, uh, with with uh, with with uh, uh, Gentile families. You know, um, but it, but it does beg the question of you know what does it mean to be an American Jew um, and uh, and and to uh, and to have this um, uh, identity um, that is. Uh, not exclusively American. And, um, some of my congregants and I were studying uh, Louis Brandeis uh, last night, uh, and uh, and and his argument was that um, that to to have pride and to be an active participant um, in your uh, particular group, right? Your, whether that is to be a you know a a, a proud uh, citizen of your city, proud citizen of your state. Uh, or uh, a, a proud member of your uh, congregation or, or lodge, as he put it. There's a time when there used to be lodges. Um, uh, I guess there still are, but most people don't belong to them. Uh, or or, uh, or a, uh, a, a proud member of your ethnic or religious group, um, that that actually makes you a better American, right? So you are a better American if you are a, uh, a prouder, uh, more distinct, more active more passionate Jew, uh, and I think that's a that's a, a I mean that's the model that that you're talking about, Justine. I think that that I hold too. Um, but, but that's the beauty of this country. Yeah, that right. This country was was founded based on the idea of of religious freedom, um, and and so uh, for me, right, what makes me proud to be American is when I walk down the street with my kippah on my head uh, next to my neighbor who is wearing a hijab, right. Uh, next to our, our friend who is an atheist right. uh, that that is america and if we have to choose one over the other uh then what are we doing because the america that we are living in is not the america uh and the american ideals that this country was founded on right because there's there's no there's no america apart from all of the constituent parts of America, right? So to be American um, is, is, you know, there, there's no, that's like, I think why people were rightly out, outraged when, when people use, you know, people in politics use the phrase like, you know, in the real America, right? And what, what, they, what they tend to mean is like where, you know, where Americans are mostly white and Protestant uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, rural, rural or suburban. Uh, but, but that's no more the real America than Newark, New Jersey. And that's no more the real America than South Orange, New Jersey. It's no more the real America than Richmond, Virginia or Washington, D.C. or San Francisco, California, right? Those are, last I checked, those were America too. And all the people in them uh, are part of the fabric of America, right? So to, so to be American is to uh, wear a kippah, uh, uh, walking down the street uh, and, uh, uh, you know, not going into uh, McDonald's, right? That's American. It's also American uh, to, uh, um, to eat, uh, you know, to, to, you know, eat a lobster roll, uh, you know, on the, uh, uh, you know, where, wherever it is that uh, Gentiles eat lobster rolls. I don't know where that, where that is, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, um, I lost I, the thread I, of what I, I was saying there. I, but. I hear you. I hear <laughs> yeah. you. Um, I, I wanted to just, just pick up one um, more point before we open it up to, to those um, who, who have joined us uh, for our, our live recording and see if they have any thoughts about the show or any questions. Um, Mike, you and I uh, spoke about this um, previously about um, how our own actions often impact that of our children. Uh, and regardless of what's going on in the world, um, our, how we respond to what's going on in the world um, leads to how our children respond to that reality. I f- think of that going back to the 2016 election. I think of that now during this pandemic uh, that understandably uh, is very unnerving to all of us in these uncertain times. And it's important that we sit with our fear and we sit with our grief and we sit with our anxiety, uh, but also that... Um, my wife regularly makes me turn off the news if I'm watching a press conference with my kids around because she doesn't want that fear that we are feeling 
to end up um, exuding so much in the world that our children begin feeling that same fear. And I think of that, um, right, the, the third episode of this miniseries started with the, the son, with Philip, uh, who, right, is the, the author, uh, right, supposed to be the author in this alternative reality, in this alternative history, uh, with him having nightmares, nightmares yeah. because of being at home every night and hearing his mom and his dad and his cousin and his uncle, all of them talking about listening to the radio and talking about Lindbergh and talking about what would happen if Lindbergh gets elected. And now he fears for his own safety and his own life because he's overhearing those conversations. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's such a, I feel that, um, that pressure, that, that, you know, that anxiety on top of anxiety as a parent about, uh, how much to talk. I have young children like you do, you know, how much to talk about, how much to reveal, um, and, and how much of, you know, what we're currently living in, both this, like you said, both this pandemic um, and the Trump era, you know, to try to kind of make a life is beautiful situation, you know, where, uh, where we, we, might as, we might be in, God forbid, a concentration camp, but I'm going to make my child think that it's like a, an amusement park, you know, um, and that on the one hand, and, and also like having them grow into a, a recognition of the, of, of the real world. Um, that um, that they're going to inherit and, and you know hopefully be responsible for making a positive contribution in one day and so to try to show them you know what it is that that I'm doing and, and and where it is that I stand in this moment so they'll have that memory so they'll learn those values um, it's it's really it's really difficult there's there's I think a third option um, which is um, a teaching by Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, uh, who, who uh, said once that um, when he was a child, he would see scary things on the news, on, on TV. His mother would always tell him, uh, look for the helpers. There's always people helping, right? And, uh, and, and that's really powerful to me. And I've been trying to hold on to that a lot in this moment that I can say to my children, you know, here's this scary thing that's happening and it's real and it's the world that we're living in. And um, there's, there's reason to be afraid, um, but also see how people are helping other people and, and being good and decent and generous and kind, um, uh, even in the midst of uh, this experience. Um, and, and I think that that's really powerful uh, to say like, the, the, you know, that there, there, might be, there might be scariness in the world, there might even be evil in the world, but you can be on the side of good. And the real question is, um, how do we do that? Um... Uh, how do we make sure that we aren't fully consumed by that fear and that anxiety, um, which, is, which is real? How do we make sure we're on the side of good, even when being on the side of good, and especially when being on the side of good, um, causes us to be more fearful of our lives, right? That um, Bet, Bess, right? Or was that yeah, the, Bess. The, right? She just kept telling her her husband to be quiet. She didn't want to start any trouble. She doesn't know how violent these guys in DC could be. Um, right. And he keeps speaking up and he keeps being vocal. And, and she's fearful that the more you do that, uh, the more you're putting your own life at risk. Isn't it better just to be silent? Um, I was thinking, I was teaching a, a Talmudic text uh, last week that was talking about quarantine. as a story of when Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai goes into hiding, um, taken from Masechet Shabbat, and he goes into hiding because he speaks out against the Roman government and, and they're after him. Um, and so he ends up having to hide in a cave for 12 years. Uh, was that worth speaking out against the Roman government and his life was at risk now. And so he had to hide. You have that. And then you have um, the other, right? You, you have um, Yehuda, who is there, who uh, thinks fondly of the Romans. And he speaks up and reports to the Romans that Shimon Bar Yochai uh, was speaking out against them. And he ends up getting elevated and rewarded as a result. And then you have Rabbi Yossi, who is silent, right? Rabbi Yossi is like most of us. We don't know if we should speak up. We don't know how to speak up in our minds. This is terrible, but should we be vocal about it? And Rabbi Yossi ends up being exiled as a result. Uh, so even when he is silent, um, harm still comes his way. Uh, silent doesn't get you anywhere. Right. Uh, well, I think that uh, the, the conversation about uh, speaking out versus silence is maybe a good opportunity to uh, bring our live studio audience into the conversation. Um, and so we want to uh, uh, open up the possibility for anybody 
who wants to ask a question uh, to, uh, to do so. So I'm going to set it so that you can unmute yourself if you so desire. Um, so if you have a question that you'd like to uh, raise for either me or Jesse or both of us, uh, feel free. While we're waiting for people, Jesse, I, I uh, uh, wanted to remark on that story. Um, my teacher, uh, Rabbi Sharon Browse, uh, talks a good deal about that story, has spoken a good deal about that story uh, in, in recent years. Um, and, and she talks about it um, uh, using a Hebrew term uh, that, uh, um, that she learned from uh, Shimon Perez's daughter. Uh, it may be a, a, you know, a, a, a neologism in, in Hebrew, but it's lehishtablel, uh, which means to, like, to make oneself like a snail, right? to go inside your shell, basically. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the uh, takes on the, her take on that uh, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai story of, of going and hiding in the cave is that, you know, uh, among the things that happen in that narrative, he goes in the cave to hide from the Romans. Uh, uh, he's, he's, you know, uh, um, disgusted by what's happening uh, in, in society. He's afraid for his life. He goes and hides in this cave. Uh, he's there for however many years he's there. Uh, and then he comes out of the cave. Uh, eventually when he's, you know, when he's told that it's safe for him to do so. And he sees, uh, and he sees the world still mired in, in corruption and oppression uh, that's represented by, by the Romans. And, uh, and, he, and everywhere he looks, according to the Talmud, uh, things start burning up. He has like Superman laser vision um, and things start burning up. And a divine voice comes out and says, um, for this, you came out of your cave. Go back to your cave, Rabbi Shimon. Uh, right? Don't come out until you're ready to like actually be a constructive participant in, in the world, right? So the, our two options are not to like run away from what's happening in the world or to, you know, burn it all down. Uh, uh, we have a third option, which is to be, um, to, to, to work toward the solution, to be, to be on the, to be, you know, part of the forces uh, working to make things better, uh, to working to, that, that are working to push back against the darkness. We do have a question in the chat uh, from, uh, from Nina, uh, regarding Herman speaking out in DC, uh, re regarding Herman speaking out in DC, particularly he's speaking out pretty recklessly, putting his family in danger. The consequence is they lose their hotel room. Is there not a difference between speaking out mindfully and thoughtlessly? Um, I think right, that is the overall criticism of him as a character, at least in the novel, is that uh, there's no direction to his speaking out. Um, he also speaks out and assumes that everybody agrees with him. I am often faulty of that, right? I, I assume that everybody shares my own worldview and perspective, my own understanding of Torah. Torah is subjective. You're uniquely uh, blessed, Jesse. Everybody does <laughs> usually agree with you. Uh, um, uh, it is certainly reckless in that he is putting his own family's lives in, in danger, um, right? It's something that I uh, often speak to my own family about. Um, there's a difference between uh, when I bring my children to a rally or protest and, and when I don't. Right? If I've um, been arrested for civil disobedience before, I'm not going to do that at a time when my family is with me because I don't want to put their lives in danger. Uh, I'm willing to uh, risk uh, my own um, well-being, whatever that means, because I also understand the privilege that I have this time um, still um, which is different than, than Herman, right? the privilege I have as a, as a rabbi uh, and as a uh, cis white straight person, um, and that the police may respond to my act of civil disobedience differently than somebody who looks differently or prays differently or loves differently than I do. Um, but I'm still going to act differently when my family is with me because their own safety and security comes first than when I am uh, on my own. Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really good question, and I and I'm and I'm not sure if there is, you know, one simple algorithm for when it's the right time to speak out and and when it's not, um, because you could make the argument that uh, uh, that, you know, um, say, you know, confronting the anti semite in the diner, um, or uh, or or. Uh, confronting the anti-Semite on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, uh, that, 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 you know, every uh, expression of, uh, of, of uh, bigotry that, is, that goes unchecked 
um, uh, is another chink in the armor um, uh, in a pluralistic democracy. Um, so I think you can make that argument, uh, but, I, but I do think that there is you know, a, a calculus for you know, when is your speaking up going to be most constructive? Um, when is it going to uh, actually you know, uh, make a significant enough difference um, that it is, um, that, that, that may be worth the risk? Uh, you know, that, that um, and, and also, you know, um, you know, it's it, the, the people that we venerate as, you know, uh, movement leaders, leaders for, for justice and, and, and liberation, um, you know, it's not as though, I don't think, I wasn't around him all the time or at all, but it's not as though, you know, uh, 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 Martin Luther King Jr. Um, couldn't have a, like, regular conversation from time to time or, like, you know, uh, uh, go out and uh, and uh, you know enjoy time with with his children without getting into a shouting match with somebody about civil rights. Um, that uh, that that he put his body on the line and his life on the line and spoke out uh, where uh, you know like you like you're like you said Nina thoughtfully cons uh, constructively, um, uh, but it wasn't everywhere all the time indiscriminately. And I think that that's I, I think that that's a really important distinction. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're told to speak out, um, but we're also told not to needlessly put um, ourselves uh, at risk or to, you know, or to court violence uh, for, no for no productive end. Yeah. Um, we, we have another question in our chat from um, Haley piggybacking on Nina's question um, about when we spoke about colleagues who regretted not speaking out and taking a firmer stance during the last American presidential election. What are some effective ways that you think we can each personally speak out when we see injustice? Mike, what do you think? Uh, so it's a really good question. I think it, it, it partially depends on, on the injustice. Um, uh, you know, I think that, that uh, we're, we're blessed in, in a sense in our, in our time to have uh, a lot of uh, uh, avenues for for voicing our opinions. I would say, you know that uh, that uh, you know it's it's first of all I think more constructive uh, to be to to find alliances, right? So to to find the organizations, the groups um, that are that that are already uh, uh, organized to be fighting against the injustices that you want to speak out against, and add your voice to theirs. Um, rather than just you know taking to your personal Facebook page to vent it, uh, about it or to you know confront somebody in the street, um, it, there, there's there's uh, power in collective action. Um, so I would say that that's uh, that that's first and foremost. Um, I would I would also you know uh, um, uh, have uh, your elected officials' uh, contact information handy. You know one thing that I've discovered uh, really for the first time in my life. And it's, I guess, one of the gifts of the Trump era um, is uh, how, uh, how, how readily I can communicate with uh, my elected officials. Now, some of that is, uh, is elevated for me because I'm, I'm seen as a communal leader. I'm not sure if that's deserved, but that's how I'm sometimes seen. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I might have more access than, than the average person. Uh, but I've seen for a lot of those folks um, that uh, that they are they are very eager uh, to hear from their constituents, um, and I think that the best among elected officials are eager to hear from their uh, from their constituents. Um, right. so I, I, would, I would I would agree with that. Um, yeah. When we talk about uh, injustice, it depends where that injustice comes from. If that injustice is um, coming uh, from the president and his administration or elsewhere, um, and even when it's not something that. Congress can vote on, we see that with family separation at the border, um, that uh, when that came to light, it was flooding the, um, the voicemail boxes of our elected officials um, that made a difference and made enough elected officials uh, speak out against this abhorrence and uh, led the, the administration, which does not have to respond to Congress at all when it comes to immigration law to change its policy with regards to family separation. Uh, I think um, getting our elected officials involved um, is important. Uh, there, there's a space for protests uh, and, and yeah. marching and, and speaking Absolutely. out. I think all too often 
it mirrors our, our Facebook hashtag activism, that we end up marching uh, with those people who already agree us. We're not changing anybody's minds. But what it does do is it inspires us. It reminds us that we're not in this fight alone. Right. It uh, ignites a flame within us to maybe take a step further um, to speak out. I would encourage some of us to run for political office uh, on, yeah. the lo- on the local level is where more change can happen than anywhere else. Um, and um, I think that can especially uh, make a difference. Uh, Mike, we have um, another question in our chat if you want to read it, uh, yeah. and then maybe we'll make this our last question of the evening. Sure. So Kristen asks, have you ever thought of uh, what would be your tipping point to leave a place, city, country in terms of anti-Semitic threats or actions? Jesse? I spoke about this um, earlier when talking about Kristallnacht uh, and not understanding uh, why the Jews of of Germany remained after that. Um, I haven't thought of it. Um, I can tell you, though, that um, we, uh, our our children uh, have never been out of the country. We do not rush to um, buy our children passport uh, to to get our children passports, mostly because we never thought that uh, we have three young children, uh, and we never thought that we could afford to to travel on an international flight for vacation with the five of us. So it wasn't a rush, um, but um, getting them passports uh, became a priority after the 2016 election, uh, and knowing that um, um, things can change in an instance and. Uh, if God forbid we ever had to leave, we wanted to be able to. I don't see that as happening um, since, uh, as I said, that I am somebody who is determined to fight. Uh, Part of my uh, Jewish identity is deeply interwoven into my American identity. my, my American identity is strengthened by my Jewish values uh, and my Jewish values are strengthened by living in a community with those who, who look and pray and believe differently than I do. Um, uh, I, I don't know what that tipping point would be for me, honestly. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. And, and um, I, I've you know gone through a lot of the same paces as you have uh, over the course of the past few years. Uh, my, my wife is uh, a, a dual citizen. She's, she was uh, um, born and raised in Canada um, and has American citizenship too. Um, so at some level, it's easy for our kids to become Canadian citizens and it would probably be relatively easy for me to, uh, to, uh, to, to start a new life in Canada uh, if, I, if, if I needed to. Um, but, um, but even though we've, we've, we've talked about doing that, even in some ways, you know, uh, uh, taking steps toward that, uh, in, in recent years, um, I, I haven't ever really seriously uh, thought about actually going. My inclination is very much like uh, uh, Herman in, in the show is to say, you know, like, this is my country. I'm going to stay and fight for it. I believe this should be all of our country. And I'm going to fight on behalf of, of, of everybody uh, so that it can be their country, too. Uh, you know, anti-Semites, he says, this is a great line. He's like, anti-Semites have, have lots of countries, right? They're not getting this one. Um, and so my, my inclination, you know, um, would be probably to stay and fight for this country until maybe it was too late uh, to, uh, to go anywhere else. But, um, you know, hopefully we'll never ever have to um, really be forced to make that decision. Um, but, um, but, but that's what I've been sitting with a lot lately. Um, I'll wrap up, and I don't know if the show will go in this direction, but in the, the novel, uh, an emergency uh, presidential election ends up happening um, because uh, Lindbergh's body goes missing uh, and um, the, his vice president comes to the power and suggests that this is a conspiracy of the Jews and they took him out. Uh, FDR ends up getting reelected. And when that happens, then the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor and the U.S. enters uh, the war and things continue and go on as history suggests. Um, and everybody lived happily ever after. Right, hardly. Um, but but I, I, I think the lesson from that is um, America, America learned from their mistake right, that they, they thought that FDR wasn't what they needed and they turned to this uh, radical demagogue, um, this fascist, uh, and um, uh, they realized that, that um, he was turning their country into uh, really uh, 
everything that was antithetical to what the country was supposed to stand for. And then they returned to FDR. And so my hope and prayer is that um, if I could be so blunt and political uh, and staying that um, those who did not think that uh, our president was serious in the um, hate and bigotry that, that he fueled, um, have learned from their mistakes and have learned their lesson and will return to a sense of normalcy and compassion and, and love going forward. Right. And, and to use a, a, a metaphor that may be, you know, too on the nose for this moment, uh, that, uh, that, that, you know, we've, we, we, we caught the disease of, uh, of, of, uh, of, you know, something akin to fascism. Uh, uh, certainly, something uh, that uh, that 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 uh, uh, reflects and, and animates bigotry and prejudice. We caught that disease uh, over these past years, uh, but perhaps having caught the disease, that leaves us with the antibodies too, uh, and enables us to uh, to to uh, to be to to defend ourselves um, and to remember uh, what it means to uh, to to be American uh, and to uh, preserve and, and protect. Um, uh, uh, this this extraordinary experiment in pluralistic democracy. Absolutely. Um, with that, uh, we thank those who joined us live for our recording this evening and for those who are listening on however you uh, stream your podcast. Uh, we encourage you to subscribe, to uh, give us a review, uh, to rate us five stars. Smash uh, that like button. <laughs> that, that, that helps us uh, spread our Torah. And uh, now that we all are staying at home uh, in self-isolation, plenty of time to binge watch a lot. And so there'll be plenty more for us to talk about in this intersection of Torah and pop culture. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, wash your hands, stay away from uh, six feet away from people. Uh, and stay really at home. Stay at home. It's so important. Um, it's not just about your own health and well-being, but it's really about those all around you. Uh, until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care, everyone.